right, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Mission Driven Made podcast. Our guest today is a former United States Marine Corps infantry officer, a former pastor, and the CEO and co-founder of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, which is an organization dedicated to helping military warriors and their families who are suffering from PTSD. Our guest was the platoon commander during Operation Iraqi Freedom, where he led his troops to eventually secure Baghdad and seizing the presidential palace. He's also an author, a keynote speaker, and has received a Navy Commendation Medal for his combat valor. I want to welcome Jeremy Stalnecker to the Mission Driven Made podcast. Uh, thank you for being on the show, sir. I've been uh, very much looking forward to this since we connected a few weeks ago. Yeah, no, awesome. I appreciate you asking me. Um, yeah, I'm glad it worked out. So let's... Uh... Uh, look forward to having conversations like this. I think this is such an important conversation and one that is so misunderstood. I'm glad you're having it. <laughs> so yeah, excited about it. And when you first, uh, you know, talked about leadership years ago, you changed my perception of it. You're one of the few people that did that really got me to think a little bit deeper about the topic. Great. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, great. Let's uh, jump right into the first question. So I want to have most of the podcast kind of focused on leadership, but First, want to know a little bit about your upbringing and how yeah. that led you to joining the Marine Corps. Yeah, great question. So I was raised in a, a very conservative Christian home. My dad um, was a pastor for I mean, just over 30 years, started a church. And so, you know, growing up, that was my environment. That's what I saw um, when I was very young. My dad was a youth pastor and then he was a pastor. And then we moved across the country to start a church in uh, Southern California here. So that was my that was my life, and when you grow up in that, and uh, you're a boy, <laughs> people think, well, uh, you are going to uh, move into the family business someday. You'll become a pastor. It's just everyone assumes that's what's going to happen. And as much as I appreciated what my dad was doing, what my mom, you know, what they were doing as church planters and and getting things moving and the hard work and man, the sacrifice that I saw in their lives, um, I I appreciated that, but I knew that's not what God wanted me to do. I didn't feel like that was my bent. And uh, it's interesting now, right? Because I've been in uh, pastoral ministry for a long time now. But um, as, a, as a young person, I, I knew that's not what I wanted to do. I was very nervous about what my dad would think about me not wanting to do that. When I was about 12 years old, um, my dad gave me a book and it was a book of stories uh, written about Congressional Medal of, of Honor recipients during World War II. So it's these great stories. It was written to uh, young men. So, you know, very narrative, very exciting. And I remember reading that and thinking, that's what I want to do. It really stirred my heart, you know, uh, the, the courage and uh, the fortitude and the things that these folks did. And so through the process of, you know, like 11, 12, 13, 14, I wanted to go into the military. I was keeping it to myself because I was afraid of what my dad would say. And uh, I remember uh, when I was about 14 years old saying, hey, dad, would it be OK with you if I didn't go into ministry? And he said, son, do whatever God wants you to do. That's what you need to do, whatever God wants you to do. And I said, dad, I think God wants me to enlist in the Marine Corps. He said, God does not want you to enlist in the Marine Corps. There's no way God wants that for you. <laughs> and um, but uh, he, he said, again, whatever God wants you to do, that's what we'll do. And, and kind of laid out a path for me. If you're going to do that, you need to do these things first. And so instead of enlisting in the Marine Corps, one of his requirements was that I go to college. And I uh, went through a commissioning program while I was there. And I was commissioned into the Marine Corps um, as soon as I graduated. In fact, I was commissioned a week before I graduated from college and went through officer candidate school while I was still in college. So that was my path. My dad, um, you know, extremely conservative. Christian, but also very patriotic. I said, but also, I mean, I think those two things go together, but um, also very patriotic. Uh, we love our country. We stand up for our country and for the flag and uh, we learn history and we understand it. And so I think, you know, a lot of those things were built into me. Um, and so it was a very natural transition for me in spite of not coming from a military background. Have you seen that a lot um, with young boys or, or young men? They grow up kind of in a, in a house where you know, their dad's a pastor or just ministry, you know, it's a huge part of their life. And yeah. the young boy or young man's kind of expected to fulfill that. Is that a pretty common thing? Yeah, it's extremely common. I think a lot of people who are in ministry, when I say in ministry, I think we're all in ministry broadly, right? But I think vocational ministry, they're being paid to work on a church staff or, or be, a, be in ministry in that sense. That's their job. I think there are a lot of people who are in ministry in that way, in vocational ministry, that um, are there because it was expected of them, because they grew up uh, believing because of what people around them said that that's what they should do. 
and they just kind of end up there. And, you know, the danger in that, and, and not just in ministry, but as a parent generally, um, the danger in pushing your kids towards something that may not be what God has called them to is that eventually it's going to get very, very difficult. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the job is. Certainly ministry will. Um, it will be lonely at times. Financially, it may be difficult. Uh, you're dealing with people that probably don't always appreciate you. There's a lot going on there. And in the middle of that, if you feel like, and I was pushed into this or talked into this or coerced into this, uh, you're going to have a really hard time dealing with that. And so uh, yeah, and it, it's a funny thing. You know, I have I have four kids. I have a 21 year old, a 20 year old, an 11 or yeah, an 11 year old and a 13 year old. Their ages are always changing. Um, <laughs> and so, as a parent, I, I'm much more gracious toward parents. You know, understanding what it's like, but you want what's best for your kids. And if you're focused on ministry and you believe that's the best thing that God could possibly call you into, you believe that's what's best for your kids as well. So you have to be careful. But that was a long answer to your question. But yeah, I, I think there are a lot of people who end up in vocational ministry because it was expected of them uh, instead of because God called them to that. And that's, uh, you know, a very precarious position to find yourself in. Yeah, it's just that's something I've always wondered. And I've never actually asked anyone because I, I see people, maybe they're in a volunteer capacity or they're an intern or something, and they're kind of getting pushed toward that, yeah. but yeah. not really wanting to do it as a vocation. So I was always wondering about kind of, you know, what the proper course of action is, because I feel like especially ministry, yeah. that's something that's like kind of, you know, you shouldn't go in if you're not kind of all in, or at least that's kind of how I've taken yeah. it. Well, and I think, you know, along the lines of how do you deal with that, I think we need to change our understanding of what ministry is. Um, you know, I've been to your church, and I, I know that you've been involved in ministry there. There are a lot of people who are involved in ministry who aren't vocational. They're not being paid to be in ministry. And when we understand that, you know, as Christians, we have the call of ministry on our lives. It is our, our job. We, we may even talk about this in the conversation about leadership. You talk about servant leadership and, and those kind of concepts, uh, really ministry, ministering and communicating truth and, and hope to people is what we're all called to do. But there are also people who are paid to do that. And so if we can just you know, understand that we can all serve in ministry, we should all serve in ministry, we all have that call on our lives, some will be paid and some will not. I think it takes a lot of that pressure off. It's not either you're in ministry or you're not. <laughs> it's possible to do both at the same time. And, you know, God leads people into full-time vocational ministry. That's great too, but we can all serve. And that takes a lot of pressure off of people who want to serve, but also want to be firefighters or want to be, you know, in the military or believe God is calling them to something else. That makes uh, perfect sense. <laughs> Crystal clear of that. And then kind of back into the, the leadership um, stuff we were talking about. Did that really start developing for you when you went through the infantry officer course in Quantico? You know, it began to have shape and form when I went through officer candidate school and through my training in the Marine Corps. Um, but again, looking back, my leadership training, if you will, began in my, in my home as a child. My dad, um, again, is a very strong leader, um, understands leadership on a uh, I don't know, just a, an intuitive level. It's not, you know, we've talked about leadership a lot and he can lay out here are leadership principles and that, but just intuitively, he knows what it is to lead. He understands how to do that. Doesn't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And so I had that modeled for me growing up. And I, I don't remember ever having a conversation about leadership per se um, until I got into the Marine Corps. But again, looking back, I think my ability to understand leadership and then begin processing leadership uh, came in large part because of what I saw with my dad. But then putting form around that happened, of course, in the Marine Corps and how to apply those leadership principles and, and how to engage in that for sure. And that was the officer course uh, pretty challenging and stressful. You know, yeah, well, I, I think it was. Um, a lot of other people didn't seem to think so. Uh, officer candidate <laughs> school, it, it's crazy. That was the biggest thing I'd ever done in my life at that time. I was in college. I had you know played sports. I'd done other things. But uh, going to officer candidate school was the biggest thing I'd ever done in my life. I loved the military. I knew people in the military. But my exposure to the military was was actually pretty limited. So then I find myself in this environment. You know, it's a, uh, it's a boot camp type of environment for the officer candidates, those who want to be 
Marine officers. And uh, it's a very stressful environment, uh, very physical and a lot of uh, academics as well. So uh, yeah, I found it to be challenging. Um, a lot of the challenge for me, I think, was just the newness of it all. I didn't understand how to do anything. A lot of uh, the men and women who go through officer candidate school, they're coming from some type of a military background, whether it's a, an academy um, or you know they have are prior enlisted and they're going through that officer uh, training process. So uh, yeah, I was completely lost, um, but uh, it got better after that. But it was a, it was a pretty tough time. I'm very thankful for it though. And did you have regular boot camp before that or after that? No, this stands in place of uh, you know on the enlisted side you'll have boot camp. Gotcha. Now obviously a lot of officers were prior enlisted, so they would do both, uh, which I can't even imagine going through it a second time. Um, but uh, officer candidate school, uh, you know, for those that are familiar with boot camp, because people are more familiar with boot camp, it's functionally the same. You know, drill instructors and and you know kind of that setting. Uh, the difference is it is more focused on leadership. Uh, everything that's done there is broken up into um, categories that are graded and scored. Half of your score at officer candidate school is what they call leadership. <laughs> and that's just kind of a broad, like, we like you or we don't. There's evaluations. You know, it's very hard to put, um, put your hands on. Um, and you have the opportunity at any time to drop on request, which you don't at boot camp. So at officer candidate school, if you wake up and say, this isn't for me, uh, you can walk out the door. So that creates another whole weird kind of pressure on you to know that you don't have to do this anymore if you don't want to. But uh, yeah, an incredible experience. Um, uh, I highly recommend it. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, man, it's a great experience for me, for sure. And that was just the beginning of training. You know, I spent another year uh, after that uh, going through actual training. Officer candidate school is evaluation. Um, and then there's training on the other side of that. So it's a long process. Is that training still kind of that intense environment that you had during officer candidate school? Uh, it, it's not. It's so at officer candidate school, it's definitely a, a, a time to evaluate if these candidates, you know, if we believe as you know, the Marine Corps, if we believe these candidates have what it takes to lead Marines, it's very straightforward. And, and honestly, if you can get into officer candidate school, because you have to test to get in and those things, you can get through it. Uh, if you'll just, you know, stay in it and work hard and, uh, and get through it. Um, the next school that every Marine officer goes to is called the basic officer course. It's six months long and it covers, you know, basically everything you would need to know to be a Marine officer from how to operate radios and weapon systems to basic leadership and tactics. Um, it's a very broad course, takes six months and every Marine officer attends that school, which is really unique. Um, if you're going to be a pilot, you're going to attend that school. If you're going to be an infantry officer, you're going to attend that school and your job is chosen for you during that six months. Again, unique to the services. You don't go into that with a guaranteed contract unless you're a flight, uh, you have a flight contract. So you go through that again, you're graded and scored on, you know, numerous topics, and then you are given a job graduating from that. Then after that six months, you go to your MOS school. So whatever your specific job is for me, that was infantry, uh, an infantry school. I went to infantry officer course, and uh, that is 100% about learning how to be uh, an infantry platoon commander, 100%. So um, it's stressful for a lot of other reasons, but there's not the yelling and the screaming and the drill instructors. It's not any of that. It's just, here's what you need to know. Let's execute that so that you can go out and train Marines. So um, yeah, definitely a, a process of growth through that year or so that you're in school. And then you eventually deployed to Kuwait. And during that time, when you know, you're getting there, you're arriving, did you have this self-doubt or just feel like I'm not ready for this? Or were you just, you know, prepared to the point where you're like confident and ready to handle everything that's coming your way? Yeah, I was really naive. I think a lot of people are. So, you know, I was 19 years old when I went to officer candidate school. I was still in college. Um, I went through a program that allowed me to be in the re reserves of the Marine Corps until I was commissioned. So while I was in college, um, so 19 years old, that was in 1996. <laughs> um, I was um, commissioned, checked into 1st Battalion, 5th Marines at Camp Pendleton here in Southern California. And that's the unit I would eventually deploy to Kuwait and then Iraq with. Uh, but I, I was an infantry platoon commander there as a second lieutenant. I deployed to Okinawa. We did training around the world, came back. I was promoted to first lieutenant, took a different unit. I had been doing this for a, quite a while before we deployed to Kuwait. And, you know, my whole life was geared toward leading Marines. And then I had 
a year of school and several years of practical application and training. So, uh, so the short answer is no, I didn't experience a lot of self-doubt. I, I guess I assumed that we would know what to do when the time came. Um, and it wasn't just me. I mean, it was, you know, the first Marine division, there were about 30,000 Marines that were there. Um, we were one unit of many, the third infantry division was there. It was a global, um, uh, event. So we had militaries from all over the world in the same place in Kuwait. There was an awful lot going on. And uh, I felt very prepared for what it was I thought I would have to do. I didn't start to have doubt until later. <laughs> uh, but man, looking at the game, yeah, I know how to play this game. It's going to be great. And uh, we know exactly what to do. Um, I, I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday before we went to Kuwait. And we deployed to Kuwait because no one was in Iraq yet. So this is early, uh, you know, January 2003. Um, no one was in Iraq yet. We were building up that coalition force. And I remember my mom asking me, do you, do you feel good about the reason you're going? And do you believe, you know, what we're being told and all these things? And uh, I said, Mom, it doesn't matter. I'm a United States Marine. I'm a Marine officer. Uh, my job is to do what my country needs me to do. And that was kind of my attitude. There's a lot of hubris and, again, you know, uh, being very naive. But in the beginning, that was exactly how I approached it. This is what I've trained to do. Um, I spent a lot of time doing this all over the world. It will be for real this time, but it shouldn't change that much. So um, yeah, it's weird. And I, I think the training builds that in you. And that's not all bad, right? It, it equips you to do what is going to be very hard. And then once you actually show up, the, yeah. Then kind of what happened with uh, with your mindset from there. Yeah, then things changed a little bit. Um, you know, what's funny, the execution part of what we did really was not something that I ever doubted. I, I We'll talk about, you know, training and how that impacts what you do maybe later on, but you train so much. And one thing the Marine Corps is very, very good at is, is training that is realistic and training that is very simple. So when you train, you train, you know, an event, uh, an activity, a movement over and over and over and over again. And up to that point, um, I had had the opportunity to train many of these things, you know, hundreds of times in a lot of different environments. So when it came to executing what we needed to execute, we just did that. Um, where I began to question things was when we crossed the border into Iraq um, ours was the first Marine infantry battalion into the country, securing the Southern objective on the Southern border. You move into that in the middle of the night, things were crazy out of control. And the tracer rounds were now coming our direction, uh, as well as going down range, right? We had, we had trained a lot, but the tracer rounds only went one direction and now they're coming back our direction. And I remember the dumbest things you think, you know, in moments like that. Um, I, I remember in the middle of all of that, having the thought, my mom was right. I really should have figured some of this stuff out. I don't know why we're here. Why are we doing this? You know, and it's a fleeting thought. Um, first KIA of the war was one of our lieutenants. And um, I've written about this a little bit. But that, again, causes you to question things. There's so much happening that is, uh, it turns your world upside down, because these are things that are not supposed to happen. These are things that back home would be major events and now it's just part of the course of your day that you have to deal with in order to continue moving. And so uh, you really do begin to ask a lot of questions. And then very quickly, because you need to continue moving, you compartmentalize that. And uh, hopefully you come back and process it at some point. But uh, very, very strange, overwhelming in so many ways uh, environment to find yourself in. And can you talk a little bit about the experience of when you actually occupied Baghdad and what that was like? Yeah, that was, so uh, we went into, into Iraq. Um, I think the date was March 19th. I, I get it mixed up because of time zones and so forth. I think it's March 19th. Uh, we went into Baghdad or into Iraq, um, secured the Southern objective, uh, our sub Southern objective on the border, and then began pushing North. We made our way as a road March um, toward Baghdad um, got there pretty quickly. We had, you know, quite a few engagements along the way, but as we pushed forward, uh, you know, so we were one battalion, 1200 Marines or so, but again, there were 30,000 Marines in the country at that time. There were a lot of support, um, personnel, the third infantry division of the army was there. So there was a lot happening. And as we pushed North, we were sweeping, um, every enemy combatant North, 
Um, some of them stayed and fought and died. Others continued to uh, push into Baghdad. Eventually, that's where they would make their stand. Others just ran away because they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So uh, we had a lot of engagement on the way up, but we hit so hard that, you know, we, we continued to push north. Um, on April 10th, we came to Baghdad. April 9th, we were right outside of the city. We staged um, the army had gone into southern Baghdad on uh, April 9th. So Baghdad is kind of split by the Tigris River. Um, there's a big bridge that goes over the river from south to north. The airport's on the southern side of the river. Um, the presidential palace where Saddam actually lived is on the south side of the river. So a lot of people know that. Um, April 9th, the army went into the south side of Baghdad and had some resistance, but very little. That's the day that, you know, a lot of people remember seeing the tank throw the chains around the statue of Saddam and pull that thing down. Uh, that was April 9th of 2003. When that happened, they went into the city the day before us. There was very little resistance. And so the belief was that we made it to Baghdad. Um, we're securing the airport. We're securing these key objectives. And the enemy no longer has a will to fight. This is now ours. So our mission given to us by the division was to sweep around and come from north to south into the northern part of the city and secure uh, what's called the Al-Azamiyah Palace. The, it's, a, it's a palace grounds. It's where Uday and Kusay, Saddam's boys, lived. And there's some office buildings there, um, kind of their Camp David equivalent, something like that. You know, it's, it's where, you know, high-level military meetings would have taken place. There were residents uh, there as well. 12 acres that backed up to the Tigris River. That was our objective. Eventually that became division headquarters and the state department occupied it. Um, and that was the headquarters of that area known as the green zone later on. So um, it was strategic in that sense, but we did not think there would be much, if any resistance. That being said, uh, we went into the city um, in the middle of the night. We, I think midnight was our, our time to uh, step off. And we did. Um, I was navigating for the battalion because of my position. Uh, so I was navigating into the city. I was the second or third vehicle back doing that. And as soon as we came into Baghdad, uh, there was a, an explosion. A vehicle exploded on the side of the road. It was a roadside bomb, but it was a, it was a truck. <laughs> and uh, for the next 12 or so hours, uh, we were fighting to stay alive, fighting to eventually get to our objective and uh, you know, secure that. And so, uh, yeah, it turned into a very different scenario, very different situation than we expected. We were ambushed. Um, we had uh, just over a hundred casualties. Um, the majority of those were wounded in action, not killed in action. We had some killed in action as well that day. Um, vehicles destroyed uh, is, is the craziest thing. Uh, the weapon of choice for, uh, the combatants in the city was, uh, the RPGs. So, um, you know, in the middle of the night, the tail of those RPGs, I mean, it was, it was like the best fireworks show you've ever seen. And uh, we were channeled in different directions. That's a lot of vehicles to move in. And it's a big city. It's like Los Angeles, uh, something of that size. Um, eventually, we made it to the to our objective, secured our objective, and began running, uh, running missions out of out of the palace. Um, you know, that day was nuts because it took us so long to get there. We expended so much ammunition and, you know, the other things you need to, to fight and stay alive that once we finally secured our objective, um, we were medevacking, uh, wounded in action, killed in action off the back lawn of the palace. Um, but we had very little support beyond that. Um, and we were holding what we had, but we were told that a counterattack was going to come that day. Um, and a crazy story I won't spend a lot of time on, but uh, an A-10 Warthog checked on the station. Uh, National Guard pilot um, was looking for a fight, I guess, and he found us. And uh, we were able to reach out and ask him for help. And uh, he effectively, with that 30-millimeter uh, cannon, ended that counterattack. And that was a good day for us. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was Baghdad. It was quite an experience that ended with a bang and then got really quiet. And then for the next two weeks, we did some things in Baghdad and eventually retrograded. So, um, yeah, it's the craziest thing that you have these experiences, you know, and it's almost like it in your mind, they happened yesterday. Um, and I'm very thankful to have experienced them and, and to learn a lot of lessons from them as well. This question might sound a little bit naive. I'm just trying to picture all this in my head. So you guys are going from North to South. And when you said you're securing objectives along the way, so once you do that, 
do you go back to some type of base or do you literally camp there and you just keep moving forward or yeah. south? So as we moved, well, as we moved toward Baghdad, we were moving from south to north. So, you know, we're moving up toward Baghdad. Um, we were at uh, the forward line of troops. So at that time, there, there was no base. There was nothing like that. Wherever our lead vehicle was, was the forward line of troops. Um, it's, it's the craziest thing. We'd set a line, a screen line, a security line uh, when we're moving. If there was another unit that needed to pass through. So I was part of 5th Marines. I was 1st Battalion. There was also 2nd uh, and 3rd Battalion were there. And so we would take turns pushing through. We would set up a screen line. They'd push through us. And now they're the forward line of troops. And uh, we did that all the way up to Baghdad. So, uh, you know, most nights uh, we would stop wherever we stopped, set up our security positions. And, and that's, that's where we were. Um, when we got to the outskirts of Baghdad, that's when we kind of swung around to the north of Baghdad and then came into the city from north to south. Gotcha. And uh, when we did that, we secured the presidential palace and we stayed on the palace grounds. Uh, for two weeks and, and operated out of that. It's a very secure location. Once, <laughs> once the shooting stopped, um, large walls, big road in front of us, a river behind us. It was a good place for us to operate out of, and that's what we did. Yeah. So that was uh, in that time in Iraq. That was uh, the time that we were in a, um, you know, it wasn't a, a camp per se or a base, but it was the most secure location we were in during our time in Iraq. And when you would get into these kind of hairy situations, where, you know, there's bullets flying and all the other stuff you're describing, would you see yourself really falling back on all your training every time? Yeah, 100%. You know, when you go through that training, particularly early on, um, not at officer candidate school so much, but the basic officer course where you're learning all of these things for the first time. You, you hear the phrase over and over and over and over again. You need to drill this until you uh, can't forget it. Uh, this is something that will save your life. You will fall back on your training when the bullets are flying your direction. And what's crazy at that time, we're talking about you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, those who were saying those things and teaching those things had not experienced combat. But what we know historically is that the better you train, the better prepared you are for whatever happens, and you can fall back on that. Um, the idea of muscle memory and the idea of drilling something until it is just a natural outflow of you know who you are, you know exactly what to do. That is exactly <laughs> exactly what happened. Um, there were a lot of puzzles to be solved and things to be figured out along the way. Of course, uh, good leadership requires you know figuring those things out. There's very unusual situations, but but practically in the execution of what we needed to do, it was our training was this and we executed um, what we had trained to do. I, I could give a lot of examples of that, but you, you know, on our way to Baghdad, we found ourselves in a, a very difficult spot. I, I've, I've written about this as well. Um, we were securing a bridge and things went, went crazy. It was very different than it was supposed to be. Again, we were ambushed, but this time with mortars, um, and a machine gun position. So all of these things came out of almost nowhere. We didn't expect them. It was the middle of the day. This was a bad situation for us. And we executed two movements, not perfectly, but with you know violence of action and force in a way that allowed us to dominate very quickly. And we did that without pulling back and saying, what do we do? We all knew exactly what we needed to do. My unit, the, the platoon I was responsible for because of the way we were organized, um, I had uh, 84 Marines. I had 18 vehicles. We had a lot going on. And the Marines who needed to execute knew exactly what to do. Adjustments would be made. Communication happened. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it was the training that allowed us to do that. And, you know, it, if you have, you know, as a, as a first responder, I'm sure you, you know exactly what that's like. Um, and many people who are listening to this would know exactly what that's like. Uh, but you train and you train and you train and you train and you train. And then when it happens, you don't even think about it. And you go, how did I get here? Well, I trained it for this for years. And that's how we got here. Um, yeah, so, so important. I feel like just about everything I learned in the fire department, like with the training and repetition to where it's muscle memory, I'm pretty sure we stole almost all of that from the military, yeah. <laughs> just about everything. Well, it's, you know, that muscle memory thing, and, you know, we're not talking about post-traumatic stress here today. That's what I, I deal with a lot, but 
um, we talk about post-traumatic stress and what causes those triggers, as we call them, and those things. Uh, a lot of it is that God has built us to be able to um, store information subconsciously that when we find ourselves in a situation that demands that information, our subconscious mind will act responsively. And so a lot of training is building that in. It's storing that information subconsciously so that when the event happens, we're able to execute without a lot of thought. Um, that's what training is, you know, whether it's sports or, you know, for the first responder community or in the military, uh, law enforcement, whatever it is, uh, that's what training is supposed to do. And it, and it does if it's done right. And then as far as, again, your perception on leadership from when you were trained to when you actually got deployed to war, did anything change at all for you? I don't know that my understanding of leadership changed when we deployed. There was a lot of clarity that came to um, my role. And I think other leaders would say the same. It's an interesting thing to try to lead when there's not a lot going on. <laughs> um, and when there are a lot of leaders, there are a lot of type A leaders, as there are in the military, uh, it seems like everyone is kind of vying to lead. But when you have very specific missions that require every leader to do their very specific job, it clarifies your mission, it clarifies your role, and it just causes things to fall into place in the way they really should be. Um, so I don't know that it changed my perception of leadership, but it definitely gave me a clear focus that I am the leader, which means I am responsible, which means I need to make the right decision because there are people following me uh, whose lives depend on me making the right decision. So a tremendous amount of focus comes into play when you're in a, you know, not just a combat situation, but a high stress, high stakes environment like that one. And I might be getting the timeline incorrect here, but when you came back, that's when you then transitioned into full-time vocational ministry? Right. Yeah, that's right. So I so, uh, came back in June of 2003, and July 1st of 2003, I was working at, uh, working at a church, working on church staff. So uh, yeah, very quick transition. And uh, th that was going to be one of the next things I was going to ask you how that transition was, because I, I can't really imagine, you know, being in war and then coming back and seeing kind of just... I don't know, everyday problems, you know, yeah. and then having to deal with that, not just necessarily a church, but, uh, but how was that transition coming back? And then also, you know, getting into ministry? Yeah, not good. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was not good. Uh, so that's when my understanding of leadership fell apart. What I believed about leadership, that's when it fell apart. And it took me a lot of years uh, on the other side of that to recover a clear understanding of what leadership is, which caused me to write a book on leadership because I, I did not understand it. I came back from Iraq. I had been leading Marines in combat. And, and again, to be clear, my part in Iraq was relatively, you know, in the grand scheme of things, small. But I was leading Marines as part of a large unit that was part of a larger division that was part of a multinational coalition. You know, globally, we have people from all over the world. Um, we invaded a country, call it whatever you want to. We moved into a country. They didn't want us there. It was an invasion. And we established ourselves in their capital city. I was a part of that. That was what I had always wanted to do. Um, not because I was special, but because I was good enough at my job. There were people that I highly respected that would ask my opinion on you know, the execution of various uh, assets that I had available to me. Um, I, I was living the dream to coin the phrase. I mean, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I felt like I was respected by people that I respected. And then I transitioned out of the Marine Corps and came onto a church staff that um, it was our home church. It's the church I go to now. Um, it was our home church. It was our pastor. They, the staff members were my friends. And uh, I found myself completely lost. I had no idea how to lead in that environment. Um, I quickly became very bitter, <laughs> uh, which led to me becoming very angry. And, you know, people asked my, my son, my youngest son asked me the other day, did you have post-traumatic stress when you came home? I don't, I don't think that it, for me, it was post-traumatic stress. There may have been some of that. Um, but for me, it was more just a complete loss of purpose and direction and really identity. Who am I? I know how to lead. 
uh, I have led. These people don't understand who I am or where I've been or what I've experienced or what I've done. And it became very, very frustrating for me to the point that over the next you know, year or so of being on staff, so it uh, took about a year, um, I caused so many problems and created so much chaos uh, there on staff that my pastor, who, who I love <laughs> and who loved me, called me into his office and said, this is just, this is not working. Um, I love you. I love your family. I want to help you, uh, but you need to figure this thing out. Either you're going to figure out how to be here and be productive and be helpful, uh, or you're going to have to move on. And I want you to take the next week to figure it out. And uh, he, he literally said, this is Friday. I expect you to be in church on Sunday, and I don't expect to see you again until next week. Uh, and my wife and I uh, dropped our kids off with my in-laws and drove up the California coast to San Francisco um, uh, over the next week and, and spent a lot of time talking and thinking and praying. And, and, and probably... <laughs> A lot of it was that was the first time since we came since I came back from Iraq that I had the ability to to decompress. I mean, moving from one job directly into another job, but um, realized that you know the problem wasn't everyone else; the problem was me. That I did not know things that I thought I knew. I didn't understand things as well as I thought I understood them, and I needed to be humble and quiet and begin learning again. And that began a long process, but it began a process of me. Um, finally <laughs> moving forward again. And, you know, I came, came home and had that conversation with my pastor and he said, all right, we'll figure this out. And that's, that's what we did. So very difficult transition. Um, I thought it was unique to me. Uh, I'll tell you that a lot of men and women coming home from, you know, combat deployments or, or really even just transitioning out of the military experience something very, very similar. And it comes down to, in many ways, a loss of identity and a misunderstanding of what leadership is. We know how to lead in a particular environment, but we don't actually understand what leadership is. So when you find ourselves in a different environment, we're completely lost. And, and that was me for a long time. I just feel like thinking about that, that'd be so difficult. You're in this environment where you're leading all some of the toughest warriors in the world, and then you are in a ministry environment. I could feel how that would be frustrating, yeah. like going from you know, these type of hardcore people to maybe a little softer. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but I, I can just imagine that would be extremely difficult. Yeah, it, it was challenging. And I'll tell you, one of the one of the blessings, I guess, of the church that we attended and that I where I worked is that um, we attended there while I was in the Marine Corps because it's five miles from Camp Pendleton. And so there are a lot of Marines and a lot of Marine families there. So one thing I had going for me was um, I understood a lot of those folks. They understood me. And so I, I, it wasn't like I left a military, you know, community and found myself in the middle of Iowa somewhere or something like that. So there was a lot of connection and a lot of understanding. Uh, I'll tell you, as I continue to watch those folks deploy though, um, that created a lot of heartache for me. Uh, it hurt me to see people that I cared about deploy, uh, about seven months after I came home from Iraq, the unit that I'd served with deployed back to Iraq. Uh, the first battle of Fallujah, uh, which is a pretty well-known, um, you know, combat engagement. A lot of the Marines I served with were there. Many of them were killed and man, that was overwhelming for me. So uh, I was still kind of in the military environment or community. Uh, I think what was harder is I just, I didn't have the rank on my uniform or the uniform. Um, I didn't really have a leadership position per se in the church. I mean, I was working, you know, overseeing projects and things like that. Um, I was now working with volunteers, people who didn't have to do what I asked them to do. So trying to, to muddle through that was difficult as well. Uh, there were just so many different aspects of leading in that environment that I was accustomed to. And, and I just didn't know how the, how the one translated into the other. And again, it took a lot of years to figure a lot of that out. And I'm still trying, trying to figure a lot of that out. And so after you and your wife took that trip to San Francisco and, you know, you had that week to think about it, what kind of happened after that? I, I began to learn what I was supposed to do. Um, I realized that it was okay to keep my mouth shut. I, I, I tend to say what I'm thinking. And if I think something's not right, uh, uh, I'm okay with saying, I think that's not right. But I had to step back and understand I'm on a church staff team. 
uh, led by a pastor with very capable staff members who have been doing this for a while. This is not the environment that I've come from, and I need to learn from them. I need to ask questions. Uh, I need to watch what they do. I need to learn how to serve other people and stop thinking about myself. And, and that's what it came down to for me was uh, everything in my life was about me. It was uh, they don't know who I am, where I've been, what I've done, what I've experienced, how important I am. They should care more about me. Um, I should get a pass in these areas because of this other experience that I've had. It, it, it was stupid, but it made sense to me at the time. And coming back from that trip, and, and again, that was a starting point. That wasn't the end, but um, that's when I really understood or began to understand maybe these folks do have something to offer. Maybe I should get out of my own way and I, I need to stop looking over my shoulder. Um, that was a time that I decided I would stop looking back to what I had done and where I had been and start looking forward, um, which was very, you know, very hard. But that, that was the beginning of that for me. Oh, it's so difficult, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. It is. What you're just yeah, saying. it is. Yeah, it really is. And, and when you're leaving something you love and loved and people you love, um, it is hard because it's not just an intellectual pursuit. It's a, an emotional, uh, you know, decision that needs to be made and you have to, you have to do the right thing and move forward, um, in spite of the feelings and the emotion and the history, uh, that would pull you back. Yeah. It's, it's very challenging. And then I know you served for, uh, as a pastor for a while after that and eventually started the Mighty Oaks Foundation. So if you can kind of tell the listeners what Mighty Oaks is and then why you started that. Yeah, I pastored uh, actually in the, in the San Francisco area, in the city of Fremont, in uh, kind of the East Bay. Um, pastored there for seven years. Again, a long story there, but I served at the church uh, in Oceanside for five years and then moved to that church and pastored for another seven years. And in the process of that, I got to know um, another Marine veteran, uh, Chad Robichaux, um, who he and his family, so he had, he had done eight combat tours to Afghanistan, uh, came home through a long process, uh, a mentor stepped into his life, led him to Christ and helped him to deal with so many of the issues that he experienced because of combat and that, um, but from a biblical perspective, understanding who you are in Christ and aligning your life to the life that God created you to live. So Chad was going through that process, believed that God wanted him to use what he had learned to help other veterans. And so him and his family left Houston where they were living, moved to Colorado and started, really started the Mighty Oaks Foundation to help veterans and uh, active duty service members. He was starting the program. We met as he was beginning the program. Um, I had the military background, but I had the ministry background. More importantly, um, he had a lot of military background and zero ministry background. He'd only accepted Christ a year or two before that. I was trying to figure it out. So he asked me if I would help him, you know, put together the program, but put together more curriculum and direction and how do we communicate this and those kind of things. So we began to work together while I was still pastoring. Um, we would do these, these programs uh, for a week and then I would go back and, and, and uh, do what I did at the church. And eventually I was spending more time with Mighty Oaks stuff than I was with church stuff. And, and God opened the door for me to uh, go on full-time with Mighty Oaks. And so that was kind of the, the, the trajectory there. But what we do, we serve veterans, active duty service members, first responders, and uh, spouses. Um, many of those in those categories are dealing with some degree of, of uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, many have been clinically diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Some are just struggling, as I mentioned, with transition and just other life issues. But they come from one of those uh, one of those um, communities, and so we have the opportunity to serve them. We have uh, facilities across the country, a number of states across the country, and we'll bring those men or women. We have men's programs and women's programs. We'll bring them to one of those facilities, and they'll spend a week with us. It's not long. Uh, spend a week with us, and we talk about trauma, what it is, what it isn't, but more importantly, and for the majority of the time, uh, we talk about how you can align your life to the life you were created to live. And uh, a lot of people who attend are not Christians. Uh, many of them have tried other therapies and other uh, helps to get beyond uh, whatever it is they're dealing with and just haven't found a lot of success uh, as a Christian, I would say, because their foundation is wrong. Um, and so they come to us sometimes as a last resort, again, not really into faith or, or God and don't care. They just need help. 
And we really help them understand that it is only by aligning your life to the life you were created by God to live that you can begin to move forward in spite of your trauma or your hurts or, you know, whatever it is that's going on in your life. Those things don't go away. You don't forget them, nor should you, but you can grow through them and begin moving forward uh, with purpose and hope. And so we do that for a week. Uh, we have a long follow-up process and we'll, we'll help folks get, you know, additional counseling and the things they need as well. Um, and then in addition to that, we, we do a lot of what is called resiliency training, where we'll go to uh, active duty units and you know conferences and other places where the active duty military would be and talk about spiritual resiliency, what it means to be spiritually resilient. And we've had the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, we've spoken to about 150,000 people over the last uh, several years in, in places like that. Uh, the first responder community is uh, relatively new for us. We've been working with first responders. And for us, that means, uh, you know, anyone in that community is a broad umbrella, of course, but a big umbrella, but firefighters and police officers, primarily EMTs and others um, that would also fall into that category. We've been, went, been serving that community specifically uh, for about four years, and uh, it's been awesome. And uh, even with that, doing resiliency training at police departments and fire departments and, and other places. So uh, God's really continued to open some great, great doors of opportunity for us. Do you really feel like you've found your purpose again? You know, kind of like you're explaining when you're in the Marine Corps? Uh, yeah, you know, yes, but, um, not specifically with mighty Oaks. I believe that's where God has me and where God wants me and where I'm engaged. I've had the opportunity to use ministry and military and God has brought those two things together. Um, I think what I learned early on, you know, after that experience of, of almost getting fired from my first church job to understanding, uh, beginning to understand some things. What, one of the things I learned in that process was uh, my purpose uh, is being where God places me, doing what God wants me to do, regardless of what that is. And when I was working on a church staff, when I was pastoring, I felt you know, as passionate about those things as I do about Mighty Oaks. Um, that's where God had me. Those were the opportunities God gave to me. He was leveraging my own unique set of gifts and talents um, and the opportunities that he put in front of me. And uh, so I was able to lean into that. And then Mighty Oaks to me is kind of more of an extension of that. It's, it's the next step uh, on that journey, if that makes sense. I, th I think too many people spend their lives looking for what, whatever it is their purpose is, um, trying to find that, trying to understand that, trying to attain that. Um, I, I'll tell you, your purpose today is to have a relationship with God, to live a life that reflects his word, <laughs> And to take full advantage of whatever it is he set right in front of you. Uh, and as you move forward into that, he begins to open other doors and you continue to walk through those. Uh, we spend way too much time worrying about, you know, am I where God wants me to be? Am I doing what God wants me to do? Is this the purpose God has created me to fulfill? Those are very important questions. But there are some people that aren't doing any of those things because they're so wrapped up on trying to land in the exact right spot. If you're where God wants you to be right now, doing what God wants you to do, you're engaged in that work, you're focused on him, uh, you're where he wants you to be, and he'll take you to the next spot. And so that's been a long process for me to get to that and to understand that. But it takes so much pressure off of us yeah. when we realize my job today is to have a relationship with God, to live a life that reflects that relationship in his word, and to trust him for the next step. And uh, I wanted to make sure I asked you this. And again, I might be jumping around because um, I know you're also an author. And I remember when I heard you speak, and I think I read this in your book, you said, I'm going back to leadership again, that leadership isn't a personality type. And what it is, is getting people from where they are to where they need to be. Yeah. So I want to make sure I asked you, um, since that's always stuck with me, um, if you can kind of expand on what that, that means to you. Yeah, that. So I did write a book on leadership, um, leadership by design. I wrote the book because I was struggling to understand leadership. <laughs> um, I saw leadership demonstrated in my dad. I learned military leadership from the Marine Corps. I found myself in a church ministry environment where leadership was. Um, definitely done. My pastor is a strong leader and understands leadership very clearly. But those three things, those three kind of leadership buckets in my life, they didn't really connect at all. And 
I started a, a pursuit of understanding leadership. I read every leadership book I could get my hands on and had every leadership conversation and watched every pod, uh, every video and listened to every podcast. Um, uh, I fully immersed myself in understanding leadership and learned a lot of, in terms of understanding what leadership is, <laughs> um, I came away a little more confused, honestly, than, than when I started that pursuit. In the church world, we talk about servant leadership. Um, so I spent a lot of time studying that and trying to understand that. And this is me. I'm not saying this is what was communicated, but this is what I received. That servant leadership or ministry leadership, often, if we're not careful, can be uh, manipulation, getting people to do what I want them to do, but then attaching God to it. So, um, Ooh, well, that's good. You know, Ooh, that's uh, I, convicting. I am a ministry leader. God wants you to do this, but really it's, I want you to do this and I can, you know, use God for cover. Um, and I'm not saying there's always, you know, the desire to manipulate or the desire to coerce in that, that it's, it's always nefarious, but in reading literature on servant leadership, I came to the conclusion that a lot of what I was being told and reading was how do you leverage the Bible? How do you leverage God to get people to do what you as the leader want them to do? And that just didn't feel right to me. Um, and then looking at military leadership and the other styles of leadership. So without spending all day on this, um, a lot of study, a lot of work. I wrote the book for myself because I wanted to understand where leadership came from, what it was. And I concluded that we are all created by God to lead. That's leadership by design. Every single person, it doesn't matter um, if you, you know, stay at home, work from home, you lead a multinational company, uh, you're in the military. We're all created to lead, but we have to understand what leadership is. Uh, and, and to me, this boiled down to that phrase that you just used, leadership fundamentally. And I, I've taught this in military settings. I've taught this uh, oddly. Um, I, I've taught this in conferences where generals and senior uh, enlisted were sitting there listening to me explain leadership to them. Um, what I have come to conclude is that fundamentally leadership is taking people from where they are in their lives right now to where they really need to be. So you pull out a little bit further. What does that mean? It means I have been given certain gifts and opportunities. I have resources available to me, more or less. I mean, we're all different. So what that would be for you is different than what it is for me. But I have things available to me, but they're not for me. They're so that I can help the people who are in my life that I have been given the responsibility for or leadership over <laughs> I can use what I have for them to move them from where they are right now to where they need to be. And so many ways we can apply that and you have to apply that in your own setting. But when you look at leadership as responsibility and you look at leadership as really a support role, you look at leadership as me to my kids saying, my job is not to hold you in my home forever. My job is to use what I have, my experiences, my knowledge, my resources, my opportunities. My job is to help you kids move from where you are as children to where you need to be as adults that can function in society, that can serve God, that can live out your own purpose. That's my job. As a leader in the home, that's my job. In a corporate setting, my job as the leader, if it says leader on my name tag or on my, you know, the thing on my desk, um, my job is to use whatever resources I have to help you as an employee move from where you are to where you need to be. I need to resource you, equip you, and give you the opportunities to grow and to execute the job that we have hired you to do. That's my job. That's what I'm supposed to do as a leader. Now, that may require casting vision and you know doing all of those things, maintaining alignment. But at the end of the day, it's about helping you be fully who you were created to be and doing fully what you can do. Um, and that's different than management. Management is not a bad thing. We need managers. Management is just moving people and things from one place to another. We need managers, uh, but that's not this. Uh, some people need to be managed because they won't be led. That's another separate conversation. But a leader who has people in their lives that are willing to be led um, leverages what they have for the benefit of those that they're leading. And, and here's why that matters to me. 
because in the military, I was able to lead, but really what I was able to do was, was employ a series of leadership uh, techniques and tactics to accomplish a job. What I saw as leadership was really a list of things, <laughs> qualities that I was supposed to have and do. But when I found myself then outside of that environment in a home environment or in a different work environment, uh, those same leadership traits and principles, we call them in the Marine Corps, those tactics and techniques, they didn't work. And what I said was, well, I am a leader, but you're not receiving my leadership. What I was doing was misapplying something that I had learned for a different environment. I'm all for learning how to lead in specific environments. We have to do that. But fundamentally, my job in the Marine Corps was to, and I didn't fully understand this, was to use what I had to help those Marines that I led get from where they were to where they needed to be. Um, and that changed from where they were at one point was on the south side of the Iraqi border, where they needed to be was on the, right, uh, on the north side of the Iraqi border. My job was to equip them to accomplish that, to accomplish the follow-on missions, to stay alive, to help each other. That was my job. It was that, not to manipulate them into getting them to do what I wanted them to do. Um, I, I could talk about this all day. I won't. But uh, to me, we have to have a fundamental understanding of leadership. This is what it is. And my environment doesn't change that. Now, how I do that may change from environment to environment, um, but my environment does not dictate whether or not I can lead because I can. <laughs> I can always leverage what I have for the benefit of those in my life. And with that being said, with your experience, what would you say you've seen is the missing link when it comes to someone trying to lead? Yeah, missing link is hard because every person is different, but I think that the missing link is a fundamental, if I had to define one, is a fundamental misunderstanding of what leadership is. Um, we have so many different phrases. Point leadership is something that you know we recognize in the military and the church world. Often that's what, what we demonstrate, that there is a leader, and then there are people who support that leader. The problem with that is we, if we're downstream of leadership, we don't see ourselves as leaders anymore. We see ourselves as simply people who are there to support a leader, and we yield or give up our own leadership in the lives of other people. Or we aspire to someday being the leader. Um, we, we fail to take responsibility for who we are and where we are and what God has given to us to do. Um, people who are able to translate out of one environment and into another well are people that fundamentally understand uh, if I'm leading Marines in combat, my job is to equip them to do what they need to do. And there may be very specific things that are required for me to do that. I'll learn those things. Uh, I'll grow. I'll you know go to schools. I'll learn those things. But the job is the same. And then when I go home, <laughs> uh, my family life, my job as the leader in the home is exactly the same. It's to equip those in my life to do what God has called them to do. If I trans, uh, uh, transfer out of the military and find myself in a corporate environment, um, I can continue to lead. It's different. I'll need different skills and different education. I'll need to read different books. I'll need to understand different policies. But fundamentally, the job is exactly the same. To equip those that I lead to accomplish uh, what they're there to accomplish, to be who you know God created them to be, depending on the setting, I guess. But um, to me, that that was the thing that unlocked it for me, was was realizing it really doesn't matter where I am. I, I could be anywhere and I can lead. Um, not because of my personality, not because of my my education or my background or my knowledge, but because I can always leverage what God has given me for the benefit of those in my life. And if I'll do that, then it really doesn't matter where I find myself. Now, uh, my ability to do that well may be different from one environment to another, of course. And we have to learn and, again, get education and those things. But um, I can lead wherever I find myself because we were all created by God to lead, every single one of us. And I love the way you describe that because, like I said, I that, that quote or that saying that you have that stuck with me for years is just very easy to follow and very digestible. So right. I absolutely love the way uh, that you put that. And uh, so this is going to be the last part of the show. And I want to give you the floor again for a couple minutes. 
And this might kind of even sound ambiguous after all your uh, explanations of leadership the last hour or so, but if you can kind of leave the listeners with some different skill sets that they can work on to ultimately become a leader, what would that be? Yeah. So, you know, and that's a, that's a connected conversation, but I don't think it's the same, same conversation um, because it begins with that definition. You, we have to understand what leadership is. You've got to get a hold of that first. I think we need to teach that to our kids. Um, you know, our kids may be young and they're old, uh, they're growing and they're getting older, um, but through their lives, their job as God created leaders is to leverage what they have for the benefit of others. What I just explained, we have to start there. Beyond that, though, and this is what, you know, the question is, I think, is how do I do that? So assuming you've already settled on a solid definition that uh, puts you in the place of leader, regardless of what it says on um, your job description, um, I am a leader. I do need to lead. What are some skills I need to do that? Um, Very, very important. You have to, if you're going to lead people, be able to communicate to people. Uh, communication is absolutely key. If you can't explain to people where they are and the steps necessary to get them to where they need to be, uh, then you may have the best ideas in the world and the best vision in the world, but you can't explain it. So you can't help them. So communication is very, very important. Um, You also then need to get education. So communication, education, uh, because every environment is different. The foundation of leadership doesn't change but you need to understand how best to apply what you're going to do or what you need to do in this situation. Um, Again, I spent over a year uh, after college going through schools to learn how to be a leader in the Marine Corps. That's necessary. Uh, In the home, don't assume that because you can lead in one environment, you know how to, or you have the tools you need to lead in another environment. Um, One of the things that drives me crazy in, in church ministry is that you can be in a church with so many people with such diverse backgrounds and so much experience, and yet you struggle with your kids at home and you just kind of muddle through it instead of reaching out and saying, I need help. I need to learn. I need to grow in this. Can you, can you help me here? Um, So there's education. You need to be able to communicate, but you need to know what to communicate. You have to educate, learn, grow, read parenting books, read marriage books, read uh, how to lead in the military books, if that's what you're doing, Uh, read how to lead in the corporate setting books, if that's what you're doing, Uh, learn and grow, always be growing, always be learning and stay humble enough to realize you don't know everything. Um, And then I'd say a a third part, there are probably a lot, but uh, communicate, educate, and then surround yourself with other people who are like-minded in, in, you know, their understanding of leadership and uh, who have probably been a little bit further down the road than you have. Uh, people that you can tap into, people that you can um, have a quick uh, you know, text exchange with to learn something or a long conversation, people who are watching out for you and have your best interest in mind. You have to have that community around you if you're really going to be successful. Maybe a different community in your work environment than it is in your home and you know, church environment, uh, but those buckets that you kind of find yourself in, those areas that you live uh, your corporate life, your um, family life, your marriage life, you know, whatever it is you do, have people around you uh, that you trust, that trust you, that have your best interest in mind, and that have been down the road a little bit further than you. Um, I think those are three critical pieces to being able to lead. Uh, knowing how, knowing what you're trying to do, uh, not how, but knowing what you're trying to do, and then um, learning how to communicate that, understanding what it is you're trying to communicate, and then surrounding yourself with people that can help you move down the road. Uh, critical if you're going to be a leader. Awesome. And uh, where can people connect with you? Or if they're looking to purchase any of your books, where can they do that? Uh, yeah, so two places I would send you to. Um, if you're interested in the Mighty Oaks Foundation, what I do for work, and uh, our resources, and we have tons of resources there, um, please check it out. MightyOaksPrograms.org. MightyOaksPrograms.org. That's our website. And from there, you can find uh, all the social media stuff, the store, other resources that we provide. Um, we have a YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos that cover various and sundry topics that hopefully give you help to you. Um, so that's one place. Um, for me personally, I have a, uh, a blog, jeremystalnecker.com. 
real simple because I'm not smart. Uh, and from there, you can find <laughs> all of my social media stuff and, you know, anything else you'd want uh, about me personally is there as well. So yeah, love to connect. Awesome. I'll uh, definitely link all those in the show description. Awesome. And uh, thank you everyone for listening to the Mission Driven Made podcast. If you found value in this today or the topic we discussed just made you think about it a little bit more, please subscribe to the show, take a few seconds, leave a five-star review and then share it with a friend. And as always, we appreciate the support. And uh, sir, thank you so much for all the value you brought to the listeners today. And until next time, everyone stay mission driven. Yeah.